Grace, mercy, and the peace of our God be with you this day. In Jesus' name, amen. So this morning, we're continuing in the Red Letter Challenge series. So hopefully you've been in the book and been reading and through this past week, which was all about serving, we're starting to get into these five targets, right? We're actually winding down already in this time. We're more than halfway through, and today we reach the fourth of the five targets. We start that today, progress through that for the next week. The targets are being, forgiving, serving, giving, and going. So we start with our identity in Christ as being disciples of Jesus, being people that receive from the Lord. And the second target, being forgiving, is the primary thing that we receive. We receive grace and forgiveness and mercy from our God, and from that then flows things for us to do. So last week was about serving, about our actions, about the things that we do to participate in the kingdom of God. And today we reach the the giving uh, target. There's a criticism that the church talks about money too much. And maybe that's a fair criticism depending on what part of the church you pay attention to. There are churches that possibly do spend a lot of time speaking about money and finances. But I don't think that's true here. I don't think that's true of this ministry or of me as preacher. But we're going to talk about money today. And it's important because money matters, right? Money matters. Jesus talked about money a lot, and so we should as well. More than almost anything else, Jesus spoke about money, about finances. More than about love or heaven or hell, everything except the kingdom of God. A Forbes article even identifies that. Article in Forbes says this, Money and possessions are the second most referenced topic in the Bible Money is mentioned more than 800 times. Now, why do you suppose that is? Because money is so darn important, right? It's such a central part of our lives. It's, you know, it's top of the news often, and it's an important tool. Money is an important tool for us. Much of our lives is affected by it. Turn on the news later today, and there'll probably be something about the price of gas about inflation, about food prices. We've been feeling all those already, right? Common concerns for us, the cost of living, affordable housing, health care, retirement, Social Security. Last night we had a men's event, so we were sitting down in the corner of the parking lot, gathered up in kind of a larger circle and a smaller circle, and as we were gathered there was a couple of times that the conversations went toward finances, right? Talking about how expensive things are, talking about health care costs, retirement, and just the, the variety of concerns that we have. It was notable that we spend a lot of time thinking about and talking about money. Individual households talk about it because we provide for ourselves. And as a ministry... Mount Olive depends on contributions to fund the work, the programs, the staff. It's important. But we can lose control. We need to manage our money, 
right? That's true in any situation. If there's a budget, we're expected to stick to the budget, right? I don't know about you, but I don't have a place where we can print more money. I don't know how that works. I'm not an economist, so I don't get that. But it works at some level, right? There are important life lessons that we learn along the way about saving, about debt, about paying bills, balancing our finances. Sometimes we learn those lessons the hard way, don't we? And when we don't manage our money, our money can manage us. Jesus said these words in Matthew 6, 24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. That's kind of a stinging indictment on really our human nature, right? But it's true. Because if we're so focused on finances, if we're so concerned with making money, saving money, how we're going to spend our money, and money becomes then an idol. It's possible to at least. But our other resources as well, it's not just the money in the pocket or the wallet or the purse or the bank account. It's all of our, all of our resources that have value. We love stuff. When I was a student at Concordia Seminary, we lived in St. Louis in a house that was about 850 square feet. Now, it had a full basement, so that helped, because <laughs> I built down in the basement an area that I could use for studying, for kind of an office space. I put a fluorescent light there and a plug on the wall and uh, able to set up the computer on that desk, and it worked out pretty well. In the winter, it was a little chilly, because it was not a finished basement and it wasn't heated, but overall, it was good. Just yesterday, we were talking about that house, and I looked it up on Zillow because I didn't remember exactly what the interior looked like. I knew that in our bedroom, it was a two-bedroom house, we only had one child when we got there, so it was a good size. It worked, right? But I knew that in our bedroom, there was a closet that was about this wide. Okay, this wide. The house was a, a, just this little brick bungalow. It was built right after World War II when there was this tremendous need for more housing. And that those neighborhoods are all over the country, right, where they just started popping up houses one right after another. So we bought this house, moved in, and we had this closet. Now, I don't know if people were so much smaller in 1950. Actually, I think it's because people had less stuff. There was less clothing. You know, maybe a man had one, maybe two suits hanging in the closet. And maybe three or four or five, you know, shirts. I have more than that. If you pay attention on Sunday morning, you probably won't see this shirt again for another, I don't know, at least two months. At least I could probably go seven months without wearing this shirt again. Because why? I have too many shirts. <laughs> I should go through the closet and choose the ones that I, I'm like, oh, that'll work. I should get rid of those. But I don't. Why? Because we love stuff. Now we have closets full, a garage that's full. A lot of people have storage units that are full. I read this about the storage industry. 
that there are 52,000 of those kind of places in the world. 52,000 storage facilities, not individual units, but the place, right? With the sign on the wall, you know, or uh, road, store stuff here, whatever it's called, right? Garage door kind of thing, and you get the space. And maybe it's small, maybe it's big, maybe it's climate controlled, maybe it's not. But there's 52,000 of those in the world. How many are in the United States? 46,000 of those. We're, we're leading the world. We're dominating the world's storage industry. It's all based here. I also heard this. It was a startling statistic. I don't know how accurate this is, but the word was, it was the revenue in the storage industry exceeds the music industry. So I'm going to tell my aspiring musician's son that he should just get out of that and get into storage. Here's what we, where we struggle to, to think about as we get so consumed with our stuff and our finances and our resources is that the Lord provides. This is what we miss when we get so consumed with hanging on and accumulating more. The Lord provides. 1 Timothy chapter 6. The Apostle Paul writes this to Timothy, charge the rich not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. God richly provides us with everything to enjoy. And in this context, it's easy to think about that. It's easy to pause our regular kind of routines and step back a bit and recognize that that is true, that God is generous toward us, that he gave his son, that he gives us all the gifts that he gives, life and grace, family and relationship, joy and peace, and for many and probably most of us, abundance. Now, according to Wall Street or Madison Avenue, we don't have abundance, if you look at the advertisements, if you're later today maybe you know, flipping channels and you see the ads, there's something you don't have. There's you know, a, a fancy new kitchen gadget that you haven't acquired yet. There's a car that does all this stuff for you. It'll drive itself. You don't have that yet. Or maybe you do, I don't know. There's you know, the new clothes, the new perfume, the, you know, device, the fancy thing, the tool, the, whatever it is, because they advertise all of it. I remember when I was a kid watching sun, uh, Saturday morning cartoons, back when Saturday morning cartoons were a thing, right? They're not even a thing anymore. I don't know what happened. That got turned off when I wasn't paying attention. But the commercials, oh, there were toys I did not have, and I wanted, which was their whole effort, right? That was, the, that was why those commercials existed, was to convince me as a young kid that I needed those toys or that cereal. Yes. And the same thing applies to us now, doesn't it? That there are things we don't have, there are things we don't do, there's experiences we haven't gotten to participate in, and we need to, because if we don't, life isn't complete. Life isn't satisfying. Life isn't full. Well, here's reality. <laughs> Globally, 
To be in the wealthiest 10%, you have to have a net worth of just under $72,000. Net. Well, that's not that hard in the United States of America. If you have $2,200 to your name, you're richer than half of the world's citizens. Wow, half. Now, this is kind of an apples and oranges comparison, right? Because you can't live on $500 a year in California. Certainly not in the Bay Area, but there are places in the world where $500 a year is what people earn and live on. I don't know how. That makes as much sense to me as printing your own money. I don't know how that works. I don't know where it is that you can have $500 and live for an entire year. That just doesn't seem possible. We need almost that a day around here, it seems like, sometime. But that's, what's, that's what I read. To have some perspective, there was a pro athlete who was earning $14 million a year. And they were asking him about, you know, commitment to the team and, and things like that. He said, well, why would I be committed to them? What have they done for me? I'm out here putting my life on the line. How am I supposed to feed my family? You're making $14.6 million a year. I think you can feed your family just fine. You could buy a McDonald's franchise for every member of your family and 11 more. Like, that doesn't make sense. Our skewed scales are just completely weird now, right? Recently, Deshaun Watson, who is accused of crimes against women, signed a new contract with the Cleveland Browns. Did you hear about this? Signed with the Cleveland Browns. He was a free agent, or actually went through a trade, but they, they extended his contract five years, $230 million, fully guaranteed. He might be suspended for half a season, and they signed him to a quarter of a billion dollars to play football. Really? Okay. I don't get it. Included a $45 million signing bonus. $45 million to sign his name. Wow. But this is the world we live in, where entertainment is considered of the highest value and so many other things, not valuable at all. But God is generous toward us. We don't get a $45 million signing bonus, but we get everything. Worth far more than $45 million, than $230 million, or $14.6 million, McDonald's franchises, all those toys, all those... Fancy things we could acquire worth more than all of that is the grace that God has given as a free gift to you and to me. That's his generosity. He is generous toward us. He has pulled us out of these lives that we live to be his people, to be his children, to be covered in his mercy and his grace. And he gives us all that we need. Philippians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul wrote this, My God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. The first article of the Apostles' Creed, we confess the Nicene Creed today, it's similar. God is the creator. Luther took the first article of the creed and 
wrote an explanation for it. That God gives us all that we need to support this body and life. House and home, wife and children, land, animals, all that I have. Come from God. He gives us all that we need. Scientists keep looking for signs of life. And every now and then you hear about that, right? Then there might be the slightest sign that there was water on a planet someplace. Mars, maybe. Oh, we're going to find out if there was once water there, because then it could support life. Well, we need more than water. There's also atmosphere and you know, air to breathe and all the other things, right? Did you know that if the earth was slightly closer to the sun or slightly further away, none of us would be here? We couldn't survive. Slightly closer to the sun and it would be too hot. If you doubt that, just go to the equator for a few days where you know, you'll feel like you're melting. Or go to the North Pole for a few days where you feel like you're freezing. That's the temperatures that it would be just slightly further or slightly closer to the sun. Yet we're sitting in the perfect place with just the right atmosphere, with just the right amounts of water and oxygen and all the other elements to support these lives. Who did that? God did that. So even creation, even where our planet sits in relationship to the sun, is all part of God's design to give us what we need, plus the abilities we have, through which we can earn money, the opportunities we have, through which we can earn money and support ourselves and meet our needs. God gives us all of that. So when we step back from our busy lives, ponder for a second. What do we have that isn't from him? Nothing. And the other question is, where is your heart? Where's your heart? At the end of the section about do not be anxious about what you're leading, what you're aware, possibly familiar words, um, those appear in Matthew, I think, chapter 6, but also in Luke chapter 12. And at verse 34, he asks this, or makes this statement, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. I think the, the converse is also true. Where your heart is, that's where your treasure goes. Where your heart is, that's where your treasure ends up. If you're passionate about something, if you love something, that's where the money goes. God wants our trust. You'd open your wallet, pull out a dollar bill, or a 20, or a 100. Then we could pass the offering plate around. No, um, <laughs> then you'll see on there, what are the words? In God we trust. Is it true? It almost feels ironic that it's on there now, right? That on U.S. currency it says, in God we trust. When a lot of our culture is trusting not the God behind it, but the paper, right? And the value of that piece of paper. Is it hard to part with your money? It is for me. This is my confession. I hate spending money. I hate any money leaving my, like, I just have this, I need to keep it. 
It's been that way my whole life. When I was in high school, I had a job. I was earning money, not at a very high rate, minimum wage probably, working hard. But I accumulated, I saved, I saved up a bunch of money. My friend had a stereo system that was super cool in his room. And I wanted one. So I found one. Similar, kind of cool, nice stereo system. I went to the store and I looked at it and I was like, wow, that's awesome. I looked at the price. Okay, I got to think about that. It's a lot of money. I left the store. Sometime later, I came back and I looked at it. I was like, oh, that's so cool. Turned it on. I think it was all plugged in, you know, listen to it. Oh, yeah. Tune the radio station. Some good rock music, right? Looked at the price tag. Oh, that's a lot of money. Left the store. And I probably went and saw it like three or four times. And I never bought that. Now, I don't really regret it because I would probably have gotten rid of it a long time ago. But it's the same kind of pattern for me. I have a hard time spending money. Now, that has its pros and cons, right? The ability to save is a good thing. The ability to avoid, you know, spontaneous purchases can be a really good thing. Because how many times have you had buyer's remorse? I have not buyer's remorse. It's weird, I know. The downside is hoarding is not good. We heard this in Mark chapter 10 in our gospel reading today. Jesus looking at him. So this is the man, the, the rich young man um, who came to Jesus and was like, I, you know, what, am I, what must I do? Um, Jesus looking at him, loved him and said, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. The young man is challenged to trust in Jesus more than in his wealth. That's the challenge that Jesus puts out before him. I don't believe Jesus is saying, you have to do this in order to qualify. Like, I've done all of this for you, but not this part. You have to finish it. I don't think that's what he's saying. I think Jesus is going right where his heart is because where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Right? And the man's heart was attached to his treasure, to his finances. And Jesus went right at that and said, sell what you have, give it away. And then come, follow me. Jesus already loved him. It says it in the text. See, God wants our trust. He wants us to trust him that he will provide for us, that we have enough and even more. And he wants us to be generous. And generosity is a sign of faith. Americans do love stuff, but also Americans are generous. This is in today's reading from Red Letter Challenge. You'll find this. Um, that Americans donate, contribute more per capita than anybody else in the world. Now, our tax code is also among the most generous for writing off contributions. So some of it is because we can right, take advantage of it on the tax form. But still, we should be generous. And there are a lot of generous people in and connected to this church, generously giving regular um, contributions that keep things moving. And our generous uh, gifts can be worth more than their value, actually. What's the most valuable gift you've ever gotten? I've gotten a lot of valuable gifts. But among the most are the ones that mean something. 
that have, that have a significant meaning. Parents, how many times do your, your kids bring you something that they've created? Isn't that the, among the most treasured thing you could ever get? Like the thing that you put on the refrigerator. And, and maybe you say, tell me about your picture. Because <laughs> you're not quite sure what it is. Right? But still, you value it, you treasure it. I have a coffee cup that I use at least once a week. Best dad on the block. And it's Legos. Um, and Drew gave it to me for Christmas a few years ago. I know it didn't probably cost all that much. It came from the little store that they set up at the school so they could get Christmas gifts for their family members. But it's, it says something, and I love it. And our kids have made us stuff and arts and crafts and all those things. They're not valuable financially, but they're really valuable because they express love. That's what God wants from us. Expressions of love and faith. In Luke chapter 21, Jesus and the disciples are sitting near the temple and people are coming and bringing their offerings. And there's people bringing vast sums and then there's this one woman. She gave a couple of copper coins. Maybe you've heard this story before. And Jesus looks at the disciples and looks at her and says, this woman gave more than the rest of these people. And the disciples are like, what? How's that possible? She didn't have much at all. But this is what he says in verse 4 of Luke 21. They all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty put in all she had to live on. So she's remembered still today for making that kind of contribution. She gave from her poverty, not from her abundance. She didn't offer God what was left over. She participated in what the Bible calls first fruits giving. To give from the first fruits, to give from the abundance that we've received. The amount will vary. For some, that's two coins, like for that woman. And that's enough. For others, it'll be a pretty significant sum. The Old Testament requires tithing. We're free to do more than that. I've learned generosity from my family. When I was growing up, my family had plenty. Abundance. And I knew that and enjoyed that. We were comfortable. And good things were happening with that abundance, but I didn't always see it. I didn't always know. So there were patterns that were being lived out that I didn't observe, so I didn't learn. Paula's family, growing up, only sometimes had more than minimum. So you remember starting school years with one or maybe two pairs of shoes. She remembers getting the coins together and rolling them up in order to buy like a gallon of milk. So a significant difference in how we grew up, but she was sponsoring a child when she was just a teenager, along with her sister. Sponsoring a child through... Um, World Vision, I think. In some weeks, we're going to talk about Compassion International and the opportunity to support kids in that way. That's something that was happening that I learned to participate in. My kids have a hard time going past anybody that has a sign asking for help. 
And so I've learned from my family about being more generous than comes natural to me. And it's good. Because faith in God drives us to generous giving. Our faith and our trust that God is going to provide and our acknowledgement that we've received an abundance drives us to living in a generous way. To living with open hands and open hearts so that we look at all the resources that we have and say, God's given me all of this. And we can be generous with what we've received. That's the challenge for this week, is to take steps toward being more and more generous. Let's work that way. Let's be like Jesus. Amen.